بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله This is lesson 11 correct? 12 okay All right. So this has been a journey looking at the meanings of Surah Al-Kahf, the chapter described as the chapter of the cave. And we mentioned in the beginning that it offers us a number of stories. And in between each of those stories are other lessons. So we now come to the final story in this chapter. And we're going to look at this story from two parts. Today's class will look at the first part of the story, and the second class will look at the second part, obviously. Now the story is about whom? Dhul-Qarnayn. So we remember the first story in the chapter is about the young men in the cave, called the seven sleepers in the Christian tradition. The second story was the story of the two men, one of whom had the garden. And we said that they were both brothers. The third story was Khidr and Musa. And we just finished that in our previous class. And now we come to the final story. You'll notice that in the structure of Surah Al-Kaf, you get the story of the young men in the cave, and then you have some other admonitions. It doesn't go from one story to another story. You get some admonitions, and then you get the story of the two men in the garden. Then you get further admonitions, and then you get the story of Musa and Khidr. But between the story of Musa and Khidr, there is no such admonition. There's no break. We go straight from the story of Musa and Khidr to the story of Dhul-Qarnayn. And this story of Dhul-Qarnayn is going to be divided into two parts because of the length and the amount of detail needed to cover the stories properly. The first part is about him and about his journey west and then about his journey east and we stop there. And in the next class we discuss his journey north where he encounters Ya'juj and Ma'juj. So the whole Ya'juj and Ma'juj side of the story is in the second and final part of this segment of the chapter. Yeah. So before we begin, I want us to remember the reason why this chapter was revealed in the first place. And we go to the hadith recorded by Imam Tirmidhi that mentions how Quraysh had sent messengers, emissaries, to Yathrib, Medina, what was known as Yathrib at the time. They sent Uqba ibn Abi Mu'ayd and Nadar ibn al-Harith. So it's interesting. These were, this, this was an interesting pair because the two of them went to Yathrib to meet with these rabbis. And just last Sunday, we talked about what happened to these two on the road, to, and Safra on the road to Medina after the Battle of Badr. So they were sent 
by Quraysh to Yathrib to speak with some rabbis. And the rabbis told them to go ask the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, uh, about three different things. And if, they said, if he informs you of them, know that he is a true prophet. Otherwise, if he doesn't answer the questions properly, know that he is a fraud and you can decide what you'll do with him. What were these questions? The first question they said, ask him about the group of young men in the olden days. What is their story? That is the story of the young men in the cave. The second question, ask him about a roaming man who reached the furthest of the west and the furthest of the east. That's about Dhul Qarnayn, who we're speaking about today. And the last question was, ask him about the spirit, the ruh. What is the ruh? That's a trick question, right? Yes. Roaming, and he's traveling to the far reaches of the earth. So we go now to this part of the story in the chapter. Allah Ta'ala says, وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنْ ذِي الْقَرْنَيْنِ قُلْ سَأَتْلُوا عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْهُ And they ask you about ذُو الْقَرْنَيْنِ Say, I will recite to you a record of him. So this is in reference to the question posed to him by Uqba ibn Abi Mu'id and Nadr ibn Harith that they received from those Jewish rabbis. The question about the, the man who roamed to the furthest reaches of the east and the furthest reaches of the west. They ask you about Dhul Qarnayn. So notice that in the hadith of Tirmidhi, it doesn't mention the title or the name Dhul Qarnayn. It just says the man who roamed east and roamed west. But here in the chapter, in this ayah, Allah Ta'ala mentions the title Dhul Qarnayn. And we have to explore who he was. What's his name? What does Dhul Qarnayn even mean? And there's a lot of detail. And just like we mentioned in the previous class, there's a lot of Isra'idiyat that detail the adventures and exploits and experiences of Dhul Qarnayn. So we don't relate these narrations as if they are ironclad facts, but they're in the historical narrative, and they add layers of detail uh, that we don't encounter in the primary sources. So who is Dhul Qarnayn? Some of the ulama of tafsir say that he was a king in the ancient times during the time of Prophet Ibrahim. Others argued that Dhul Qarnayn is none other than Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard that before. We have no direct textual evidence in the Quran or the Hadith that explicitly supports either view. So what do we do with this? Well, we go to the works of Tafsir and we see that many of the ulama say that there were actually two Dhul-Qarnays. They say there were two. They say there was Dhul-Qarnayn, the greater, Al-Akbar, and Dhul-Qarnayn, the lesser, Al-Asghar. 
or you could say the major Dhul Qarnayn and the minor Dhul Qarnayn. So who are these two individuals said to be? Regarding the greater Dhul Qarnayn, in many of the uh, tafsir works and historical works, it is said that Dhul Qarnayn the greater was a pious and just king who ruled over several continents. And in some of the narrations it says that this greater Dhul Qarnayn uh, had at, as one of his generals none other than Khidr, who was just mentioned in the previous story. So Khidr, according to one narration, would have been in the vanguard as one of the generals of the army of Dhul Qarnayn. The greater. Yeah, they're not saying he's Alexander the Great because those who say that there's a greater and a lesser say that the lesser refers to Alexander the Great but that's not the one referred to in the chapter in Surah Al-Kahf. So about the greater whom we're assuming here to be the Dhul Qarnayn mentioned in the chapter it said that he was a great king he ruled over many continents Khidr was one of his generals uh, he was a consultant and an advisor to Dhul Qarnayn. One narration says that Khidr was even his cousin. Again, these don't have any textual authority. There's no, there's no chains of narration for these stories, mentioning them going back to any sound authority, but they're there. For example, one of the famous works uh, called Akhbaru Mecca, it's a collection of narrations by Al-Imam Al-Azraqi. Uh, Akhbar Mecca is a collection of hadith and narrations about the history of Mecca. So it has things that are sound, unsound, and things that have no chain, that are just there for historical purposes. In his Akhbar Mecca, Imam Al-Azraqi mentions a narration that says that Dhul Qarnayn wasn't always a believer in God. It is said that Dhul Qarnayn actually became a believer at the hands of none other than Prophet Ibrahim in Mecca. He traveled to Mecca and he became a believer upon meeting Ibrahim and while there it is said in the narration that he made tawaf around the Kaaba with Ibrahim and Ismail together. And that when and that Ibrahim made dua for him and gave him some good advice before he left. Imam al-Azraqi also narrates that Dhul Qarnayn was given a horse by Ibrahim to ride. But Dhul Qarnayn allegedly said, I will not ride it in any land in which the Khalil of Allah is found. That's one of the titles of Ibrahim, right? Khalilullah, the intimate friend of God. And there's a narration that he cites from Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. Again, we don't know about the soundness of this, it's just there. It is said that he was asked whether Dhul Qarnayn was a king or an angel. It seems that the earliest reports are ambiguous. Was he a king? Was he an angelic being? Was he even a prophet? Right? And Ali is reported to have said he was neither a prophet nor an angel. Rather, he was an abd, a servant of God, who loved Allah and Allah loved him. And he was sincere with Allah, so Allah can, uh, subjugated to him 
the clouds and multiplied his riches. This is a narration from Imam Ali. Again, it's in Akhbaru Mecca of Imam Al Azraqi. There doesn't appear to be any chain taking it back to the original source, but it's historical data. So that's the greater Dhulqarnain according to many of these narrations. The books of Tafsir mention another figure called the lesser Dhulqarnain, Al Asghar, and this is said to be Alexander the Great. So Dhulqarnain can be a reference to Alexander the Great according to some scholars, but it's not a reference to the Dhulqarnain mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf. So this Dhulqarnain, Alexander the Great, is of course the Greek student of Aristotle. And in the tafsir works, they mention things similar to what's found in other historical works, that he consolidated rule over various kingdoms after his father died. And then he went towards the lands of the Arabs and conquered them until he reached the Persian Sea. He conquered Egypt, built the city of Alexandria, named after him. And then he entered Sham, and he had uh, interactions with Banu Israel, and he visited uh, Jerusalem, and then he went uh, further north, past Armenia, and then to Iraq, and then to Sindh, which is in Pakistan, and then he went further beyond Sindh, further beyond Pakistan to China, all the way to China, where he fought off different nations and tribes, and established rule in these far off areas. And then it says he returned all the way back to Iraq where he became ill and died. So these narrations are talking about Alexander the Great, which some call Dhulqarnain al-Asghar, the lesser or minor Dhulqarnain. But I mention again, this is not the Dhulqarnain in the story we read about in this chapter. Ibn Asakir, in his Tariq Dimashq, he's a great Hafiz, Hadith master and scholar, he narrates in his Tariq Dimashq that Dhulqarnain lived for 36 years, and that meaning the greater one, the one mentioned in the story. It is said that he lived for 36 years, and that he lived after Dawood and Sulaiman. Ibn Asakir then said, we only make this clear because many people believe that they, the greater and lesser Dhulqarnain, are one and the same. And they believe that the person mentioned in the Quran is Alexander the Great, and they fall into a grave error when they make this assumption. And there's no doubt as to why. He says, because the first Dhulqarnain, the greater one, was a believer, a believer in Allah. He was a pious servant. He was a just king. His advisor, according to one narration, was none other than Khidr. And the latter, Alexander the Great, is known to have been a disbeliever. And he was uh, a student of Aristotle. And there's a difference of 2,000 years between these two people. This is what Ibn Asakir says. There's 2,000 years between the two, so how can they be one and the same? So, was he a pious person, an angel, 
or a prophet. The correct position is that he was an honored king that was not an angel or a prophet. What about his name or his title? We're talking about the greater Dhul Qarnayn. We wouldn't say that that translates as Alexander the Great because Dhul Qarnayn is a title which literally means the possessor of two horns. So Dhu means Sahibu Shay, the one who has something. So Dhu, he of this, right, the possessor of this. Qarnayn comes from Qarn. A Qarn is a horn. It could refer to other things though. So the scholars of Tafsir try to analyze why is he called Dhul Qarnayn? What does that title signify? So some say that he was called Dhul Qarnayn because as a king he wore this crown and it had what looked like two horns on it. Others say that it is because he had uh, a helmet that had two horns on it. Others say that he's called Dhul Qarnayn because he had two large braids that came down like, like horns in a sense, right? They're two braids tied together. And it's been said that he is Dhul Qarnayn because he called people to the worship of Allah Ta'ala in these distant lands. And one time when doing that work of da'wah, a group of people struck him on the right side of his head. And later in his journeys, as he was calling people to the worship of Allah, some people rejected him and struck him on the left side of his head, leaving him with two scars on the opposite sides of his head. And thus he was called Dhul Qarnayn. He of the two, you could say scars in this case, but called horns, like these gash marks. And some say that he's called Dhul Qarnayn, because two generations passed away during his rule. So this is an interesting one. Because in the Arabic language, the word qarn can mean a horn, but it can also mean a generation. The Prophet Sallallahu says, خَيْرٌ nas qarni thumma الَّذِينَ يُرُونَهُمْ thumma الَّذِينَ يُرُونَهُمْ The best people are my qarn. Here it means generation. And then those who come after them, and then those who come after them. Your, your Aqran in the Arabic language, your Aqran are your contemporaries because they're in your generation. And Aqran is between 80 to 100 years. So some of the scholars of Tafsir say, or they narrate, that Dhul Qarnayn means the one of two generations, meaning the one who survived through two generations of people. That means 200 years. Or 160 years. So he lived for a very long time. He saw through two different generations. Two generations passed during his lifetime. Yeah, but even Ibn Asakir, as we've mentioned before, when, when the ulama mentioned these things, he lived for 36 years, he had this many of that, and it was this big, and these, they are reporting narrations that they find that may or may not have chains of narration. They're not, and it's a body of evidence that they present to make their point. Uh, if you take that by itself, then did he live for 36 years? How do we know? How do we trace that? And how do we reconcile that with this saying? These are opinions. There's no, 
there's no, uh, it has no bearing on our, on our theology. It's just a historical, historical curiosity, I guess. And a lot of the tafsir works that mention these stories go into these details to kind of fill in the, the details that are not mentioned in the actual story. But we go back to that principle. Why doesn't the Qur'an mention all of these details? Because they're not that important. We have a natural curiosity. Well, who was he after all? You know, What did he look like? What did he do? We have that natural curiosity. And the scholars of tafsir, they help us satisfy that curiosity by filling in these details. But none of them have any real textual authority on which we base our belief. So this is what it said about the Qarnayn in the tafsir sources. When the Prophet ﷺ was asked about the Qarnayn, he didn't mention any of these things. He didn't mention why he was called the Qarnayn. He didn't mention whether it was Alexander the Great or some other figure. None of these things were mentioned. When Allah Ta'ala revealed the story, وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنْ ذُو الْقَرْنَيْنِ They ask you about ذُو الْقَرْنَيْنِ قُلْ Say to them, سَأَتْلُوا عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْهُ ذِكْرًا I will recite to you a mention of him, a record of him. So this is not all of the exploits of Dhul Qarnayn. This is a mention of some of the experiences of Dhul Qarnayn. So we get the story of his journey going to the far west, his journey to the far east, and his journey to the far north. And we're going to tell the story of the east and west today. And the next verse, Allah Ta'ala begins the mention of that record, that mention. Indeed, we established him in the earth, meaning we gave him power and authority in earth. And we gave him a means for everything. So here the ulama say that because he was a pious king, Allah actually gave him miracles where he subjugated for him the land and the people and his wealth and kingdom multiplied and expanded. And we gave him a means for everything. So everything that he needed to accomplish his goals and to spread his authority and rule, all of those means were given to him. Knowledge, battlefield strategy, power, tools, allies, everything he needed to spread his authority was given to him. In addition to that, he found tasarruf. There was, things were subjected to him and made easy for him in spreading his kingdom across the east and the west. So he wanted to spread his kingdom and go as far as Maghrib al-Shams. Is the earth round or flat? It's round. No one should have any doubt about that. It's round. But from our human perception, from our own human vantage point right here, when we say the sun set and it gets dark, it appears that it, it seems that it disappears and goes beneath the earth and away from it, right? And we call that area the Maghrib, 
the area, the place of the ghurub, the setting of the sun. And when we are outside in the morning time and we see the sunrise, this is shuruq, that's the mashriq. The shuruq is the, the illumination, the rising of the sun. The mashriq is the east. Now we live on, we don't live on a flat earth, but from the human vantage point, the furthest reach of the west would be where the sun sets. So you just keep going west as far as you can go. Now you're going to get to a body of water eventually. No matter where you are, eventually you're going to hit a body of water. Right? So Dhulqarnayn wanted to go to the area of the setting of the sun. Not in the belief that the earth is flat, but as far as the eye can see, as far as the sun sets. The furthest reaches of the west. So Allah Ta'ala says that He gave him, going back to that verse, uh, we established him in the earth and gave him a means for everything. So he followed a course until he reached the setting of the sun. What, is it, what does it mean by the setting of the sun? It means the furthest west it will be possible for him to reach before hitting a massive body of water that cannot be traversed without a ship. So where is that? Well, let's finish the verse and try to see where that might have been. So he followed a course until he reached the setting of the sun. He found it, that place, setting in a murky spring, and he found a people near it. So he reached the end, the westernmost end, before you hit a body of water, beyond which it would have been impossible for someone to pass. So according to one view found in the books of Tafsir, he halted on the shores of the Atlantic. And in particular, it is said that he halted at the Canary Islands. The Canary Islands, you know where those are? Who, to whom do they belong? What, what, what country rules over the Canary Islands? I think it's Spain. Was it Portuguese? Maybe you can look it up. I think it's Spain. I think it's Spain. I think it's between Morocco and Spain. So if you go, if you look up, look up the Canary Islands, you'll find an area that, ha that has a, a lot of ancient volcanic activity. And it has springs that are black and muddy from the volcanic rock. Yeah. And this verse says that he followed a course until he reached the setting of the sun. The furthest west, he found it setting hamiatin, a murky spring, and he found people near it. If you go with that interpretation, it means that it's the Canary Islands. And the murky spring is referring to the springs that are dark because of the dark black volcanic sediment mixed in with the earth. You mentioned black and white beaches. Yeah. The black would be from the volcanic soil, right? And one way of reading this verse, 
في عين حامية it can also be read in one قراءه في عين حامية which means hot so there would also be hot springs you could read it either way حامية Canary, Canary Islands. And again, this is not based on a hadith. This is just an opinion mentioned in the books of tafsir. You could take it or leave it. But when you look at the description of the place he arrived at and look at the pictures of the Canary Islands and the fact that they would be the furthest west you can go, makes a lot of sense, right? And there, Allah says, he found it setting in this murky spring and found near it a people. Qawma. And the tafsir works say that uh, it said that their clothes consisted of animal hides and all they ate was seafood because that's all that was available. And these people were disbelievers did not believe in Allah and Allah Ta'ala gave Dhul Qarnayn a choice to either punish them or to call them to faith Allah Ta'ala says in the next verse قُلْنَا يَا ذَا الْقَرْنَيْنِ إِمَّا أَن تُعَذِّبَ وَإِمَّا أَن تَتَّخِذَ فِيهِمْ حُسْنًا we said O Dhul Qarnayn either chastise them by fighting against them or adopt a good manner with them, treat them well by calling them to faith and guiding them. So you know, if you look at this verse, you, you understand why some opined that Dhul Qarnayn might have been a prophet. Because قُلْنَا يَا ذَا الْقَرْنَيْنِ saying, we said to Dhul Qarnayn, who is we? Referring to Allah. The, the royal we, either do this or do that. That would seem like it's revelation. But the ulama say this is uh, inspiration, a kind of ilham, or it's drawing from the instructions of a prophet of his age, where it's unclear. Dhu Qarnayn replied, قَالَ أَمَّا مَنْ ظَلَمَ فَسَوْفَ نُعَذِّبُهُ said, As for the one who does wrong, we will soon punish him. Then he will be returned to his Lord in the hereafter, who will punish him with a terrible punishment. As for the one who believes, who answers the call, and does good works, he will have in both this life and the next a beautiful reward, and we will speak to him from our command with ease, meaning we'll be lenient and easygoing with him. So this is the option, right? The people either respond or they reject, and depending on their response, uh, how they are, they get this or they get that. So he is spreading his authority, establishing uh, the rule of law as given to the, the prophet of his age, spreading that message, establishing authority in these various lands that he's traveling to. 
And that's all the story mentions. It doesn't mention what happens, what they said, what he said, what they did, what he did. It just mentions him going all the way there and encountering these people and get received and having these two options. And the options depend on how they responded to his call. That's it. After this, Allah mentions the journey to the furthest east. So Allah Ta'ala says, ثُمَّ Then he followed a course, حَتَّى إِذَا بَلَغَ مَطْلِعَ الشَّمْسِ وَجَدَهَا تَطْلُعُ عَلَىٰ قَوْمٍ لَمْ نَجْعَلْ لَهُمْ مِنْ دُونِهَا سِتْرًا Then he followed a course until he reached the rising of the sun. He found it rising over a people for whom we had made no covering from it. So the, the majority of the Mufassirun describe this as his journey east. I have heard one person suggest that because there's no explicit mention of east, he could have actually gone further north and this area of the rising sun that rises over the people and for whom they have no covering would refer to a place far, far north where in the summertime the days are 20 plus hours. Northern Norway, Sweden, Finland and these places where in the summertime in the really far north of those regions the day is 24 hours. You know, in the summertime, six months of, of, of light, six months of darkness. Or in other places, 20 hours of sun and four hours of relative darkness. But Allahu A'lam, we don't know. But the majority of the scholars of Tafsir say that this is actually referring to him journeying to the furthest east after telling the story, the brief story, of him journeying to the furthest west he now tells the story of him journeying to the furthest east, and then from there you have the story of him journeying north, and the story of Ya'juj and Ma'juj that we'll be covering next week, inshallah. Yes? Even if he was going east, if he's going like north, like in Russia, in those places, the same thing, right? Like I'm thinking in those areas north of Russia where you have people living where it's also 20 hours or whatever yeah. in Russia. Well, Yeah, this, this is plausible, far northeast. Yeah. And what makes it really interesting is when you compare this description to the actual travels of Alexander the Great. Because he traveled, and there's records of him settling in a place called, I think it's Durbent. So you go past Azerbaijan into these northern Russian areas there's landmarks and sites where he was still to this day. So it seems as if he's, also, he's traveling in a, almost a similar course, you know? So it's interesting. But Alexander the Great is not the Dhulqarnain in this story. So he goes to the far east until he reached the rising of the sun. What do you call, what do they call Japan? land of the rising sun because it's the far east 
So Matri'a Shems, the land of the rising sun, doesn't mean he went to Japan, it just means far east. So one of the narrations says it took him to get from the furthest west to the furthest east, 12 years of travel. It's not just traveling, you know, you travel for the day, you sleep for the night. There's traveling, there's spreading, there's conquering, there's ruling over people, there's marshalling your troops, there's equipping them and supplying them and going from place to place. It took him 12 years, it said, to reach the furthest area of the east. And when he got there, the verse says he found it rising over a people, the sun rising over a people, for whom we had made no covering from it. The standard interpretation is that this means these people were unclothed. They didn't have clothing. And it's really easy for us to read this and think, how in the world could they not have clothing? Because we live in a time where clothing is abundant and relatively cheap. But as we've mentioned before, it wasn't always like that. If you're talking about making cotton garments or similar materials, up until like 500 years ago and beyond, that was expensive. It was costly. And those who had more money would display their wealth by having more garments. We have the famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says, مَنْ Whoever drags his garments past his ankles out of pride, then that whatever's below the ankle is in the hellfire. Does that mean that a person wearing a regular pair of pants today that happen to be below the ankle are the same as that person? No. The majority of the ulama say that that prohibition is linked to the inner state of arrogance and pride because it says khwayala, which means arrogance or pride. But the reason people would do that back then is because it was a display of wealth. If you look at the a lot of these tribes, these distant tribes in Arabia, they didn't have cotton. So those who were extremely poor would cover themselves with animal skins, or if it's too hot or they didn't have enough animal skins, they would take the date palm trees, dry out the fronds, and make, you know how you make, uh, you, you weave these baskets? They would weave shirts and a lower garment that would wrap around and tie just to cover their nakedness. And that was as recent as the 1920s and 30s. There's a British explorer who explored, he has an amazing book, it's a picture book too. Uh, he traveled all through uh, the Arabian Peninsula, the marshes of Iraq, through Iran, through Afghanistan, uh, all through Pakistan, and then and he ends up living in the jungles of Kenya for the rest of his life after that. Really eccentric British explorer guy. But he has pictures of him in these really remote areas in Arabia in the 1920s. And you see some of them are wearing these kinds of clothing, just garments made out of tree leaves that are dried and woven together. So it's not surprising for people living in really far out remote places 
to lack clothing. So it says here, they were unclothed, for whom we had made no covering from it, from the sun. But there's something else here. They have no covering from the sun also means they didn't have proper homes. Not, just, not only did they lack the clothing to block the rays of the sun, they didn't have homes to go into to conceal themselves from the sun. So they were living in a very uh, primitive, uh, very poor condition. No homes, no proper food. So who were these people? This is where it gets interesting. Because, of course, unless you have a, a hadith describing it with authority, it's all drawing from uh, pre-Islamic sources that talk about these people, who they might have been. And some of the narrations, I'll give you one. One narration says that these people who are way out in the Far East, it says they uh, were a people at the furthest reaches of China. And they were human beings. But the majority of their diet consisted of fish, and they engaged in cannibalism, and they also engaged in ancestor worship, and the only clothes they had were the skins they would wear over their private parts. That's not a hadith, just a narration from history. Allah knows best who they are. We wouldn't say that these people encountered by the Qarnain were uh, this specific group of Chinese people, the Han or whoever, it could be God knows who, some kind of isolated tribe that he encountered that had these particular descriptions. Allah knows best. So he encountered them. And then we go to the verse. Uh, we read it again. حَتَّى إِذَا بَلَغَ مَطْلِعَ الشَّمْسِ وَجَدَهَا تَطْلُعُ عَلَىٰ قَوْمٍ لم نجعل لهم من دونها سترا كذلك وقد أحطنا بما لديه خبرا and the last part of this uh, and we had encompassed all that he had with knowledge we had encompassed all that he had with knowledge so basically what that means is his approach to the people in the Far East was the same approach he had with the people in the Far West. And he had the same means, the same numbers, the same resources and knowledge and experience that he had from his previous travels. He's bringing all of that to bear when he encounters these people. So he's spreading his territory the same way he spread it elsewhere. So we get to this part of the story and then it mentions how he traveled north. It doesn't mention anything in particular with these people in the east. We assume the same options were present with the people in the west, meaning embrace Iman, faith, justice, submit to this authority, this just authority. And if not, well, this is, he's spreading his empire, so there'll be fault. Yes. Any like kathadik here means uh, the same options that were given to the people in the West, 
were given to the people in the East. Kadarik, in the same way he dealt with the people in the West, he dealt with these people too, giving them these options. And we had encompassed all that he had with knowledge. So his knowledge was expansive and reached such a state that only Allah Ta'ala knows how much knowledge he had. So this is the first part of the story of Dhul Qarnayn. The second part details the journey north where he encountered two mountains and he found people who could barely understand speech and they complained about Ya'juj and Ma'juj. Yeah. Yeah. So the second part of the story, Ya'juj and Ma'juj, involves reading the verses in the tafsir, but also looking very extensively at Ya'juj and Ma'juj as a phenomena in that time. And what happened? The location of this wall that he constructed, what has been said, and then the role of Ya'juj and Ma'juj in the future towards the end of time. That's why we're going to divide this into two. And this is the first segment. The second segment is going to come in our next class. So usually we go to an hour and beyond. This is it though. Because to go into Ya'juj and Ma'juj now will actually make this class two hours long. So I, I want to stop now while, while we're here and then we'll pick up on the story in the next class.